This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. They're just cracking the whip over there, but we kicked them out of the studio just in time for us to come on air. We've got you now until 12 o'clock. It's a science program, so if that scares you, you better run now. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What's the state of the climate? It's warmish. <laughs> <laughs> Hotter than it was last Sorry, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm, helpful. Yeah. No, I'm not very helpful when no, it comes not... to, to yeah. everyday climate. Yeah, you've been in the pool too long this morning, I have, I, think. I have. Chlorine's gone to my head. Yeah. Now, ev- now everyone else was away today, so we, we were lucky, though, because we managed to... Um, I was looking around the country, and we found that uh, one of our, I guess, associates from a similar community radio station in Brisbane was down here in Melbourne. And Nicola van der Vettering is um, from 4ZZZ in Brisbane. Nicola, welcome to the studio. Oh, thank you so, so much. So it, happy to be here down in Melbourne where it's, I would say it's horrifically cold, but <laughs> that's the Queenslander inside me talking. Yeah, and we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't like that up there. It's, it's, we don't yeah, get hurricanes. No. You know we don't get hurricanes down here. Mm, cyclones. Or cyclones. Or cyclones. Or cyclones. Thank oh. you very much. In is the Australian there, region, they are tropical cyclones. Is there a difference? Yeah. yeah. No, yes. there's no difference. I there's that. absolutely no difference. I mean, in the them, nomenclature. I mean, if yeah. I said hurricane, people would look at me. The only one I'm scared of is typhoons. <laughs> anyway, um, but Nicola, it's great to have you in here because, uh, you know, we have another host, which is great to have someone here when we're interviewing our guests and so forth. But um, just quickly, before we talk about news, just tell us a bit about your program in Brisbane. Oh, so I have a program called uh, Hot Schist, um, which is a geology joke because I am, in fact, a geologist. Um, so it's uh, the the key uh, phrase is it's 50% science and 50% punk. Uh, so I play uh, punk music and I also talk to uh, different scientists, generally early career scientists, uh, every week about their research and what they just kind of do for fun. Because I like to hear stuff about science, but I also like to hear about like the secret lives of scientists because I find a lot of people I talk to have a lot of different hobbies outside science that are like crazy and hmm. amazing so you'd be like really surprised what some people are into like we've had people into competitive sports a lot of people into competitive sports a lot yeah. of skiers stuff like that are you a skier i'm a snowboarder yeah oh, absolutely oh, classic yeah, yeah, yeah. enjoy your knees while you go yeah every snowboarder i know but i thought scientists were supposed to be robots i mean yeah i know right it's a perception meant to anyway be right lab coats and be dreadfully uncool but no i feel like a lot of people i talk to most of them, if not all of them, have some amazing, uh, amazing thing. I'd like to give a shout out to um, Zach Brearley, which is someone I interviewed on my show, who's a national level beatboxer, uh, oh, really? but also wow. a geology geology student, which is pretty sick. But um, hmm. but yeah, so that's that's the deal. And I'm luckily uh, enough that I travel a lot uh, for my PhD, so I've been interviewing people from all around the world. It's fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, just plug in, plug in that hot chest on Four Triple Z. You can listen to it online as well. So you don't even have to be from you know Brisbane to listen. Yeah, so you can stay in the nice climate of Melbourne. Yep. Yeah, listen, listen you don't to have to go climate of Melbourne. To <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, now we're going to get into some news before we have a couple of guests coming up. Uh, Dr. Ailey, do you want to start us off? What's been uh, happening I, I this can, week? I can. I can start us off, and I've got a fantastic story this week about one of my all-time favourite creatures. The Archaeopteryx. Now, this one probably captured a lot of people's imagination when they were kids. This is this crazy dinosaur bird-looking thing. It was this beautiful fossil that was found, I think, back in the 1860s originally in southern Germany, and it was this weird lizard 
bird thing. Basically, mm. it's this beautiful classic um, fossil, and it had beautiful feather imprints. Mm. Wasn't in that the big? Limestone. Was it? Uh, it's not that big at no, all. It's, it's like not, the size of a chicken or a small yeah, it's not, chicken. Because uh, people think um, tramadons. But no, 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 no. Tramadon no. would swallow this no, in whole. No, no. This is a tiny little. This yeah. is like chicken size, yeah, chicken or, size. or yeah. small chicken size even. Um, so this is a small bird. But look, there's there's not been that many fossils found, but the ones that have been found are beautifully preserved. But not much is known about the Archaeopteryx because people think about it as um, what's well, kind of the first thing that demonstrated the link between reptiles and the birds, you know, that all dinosaurs, you know, we mm. think somewhat evolutionarily went in, turned into birds. Um, some of them. Some of them, not yeah, all of them. Not all of them. <laughs> no, yeah, no, some I, of them. I, I'm looking for the T-Rex bird and I'm not yeah. seeing them. I mean, the ostrich, oh, maybe. The yeah, yeah. ostriches can be pretty terrifying yeah. if they get pissed off. Yeah, they can. But probably not. <laughs> no, no. But this was this was um, demonstrating the links between, between dinosaurs and, and mm. birds. And um, not many of the fossils have been found. I think 12 in total. And one of them, known as specimen number eight... Very Ooh. sexy name. <laughs> well, we know there's at least specimen eight. Specimen number eight. Yeah. No, well, there's 12 in total. <laughs> yeah. But um, this, this specimen had been studied before, but they wanted to look at it in a bit more detail because a lot of the, the, the bones in, the, in the, the fossil structure were a bit fragmented and they weren't you know, quite sure. So they, they basically whacked it through this kind of 3D uh, X-ray technique in what they call a synchrotron. Mm. Right? So they did this in... Yeah, synchrotron's fun, huh? So they did this in the UK. And they had a look uh, a bit more closely at this specific fossil that they had of Archaeopteryx and found something really, really interesting. First of all, when they dated the fossil, they found that it was um, younger by about half a million years. But then they also found some really interesting aspects to the fossil. Um, its skull bones were fused compared to past fossils they'd found. It's, I love this word, it's furcula, furcula, furcula. What is that? Wishbone. Right? Wishbone. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why you can uh, that's why demonstrate people call a connection. The yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the wishbone part um, had this knob-like extension that other um, previous Archaeopteryx uh, fossils that have been found didn't have. Now that's really interesting because apparently modern birds have this as well and it's what's needed to produce the muscles that are needed for flight. Hmm. Okay, um, And the other thing that was really interesting was that its wrist bones were fused compared to the previous Archaeopteryx as well, which again gives um, more yeah, yeah, credence yeah. to the whole flight thing because it can uh, do a more powerful downbeat when the, the wrists are fused as opposed to not fused, otherwise you're kind of just flopping around. <laughs> um, and so what they felt that meant was because it was younger, because of these uh, evolutionary changes, they felt that it was much more closer to, in fact, a modern bird than it was the dinosaur, whereas the previous fossils of Archaeopteryx looked much closer to dinosaurs. So this is kind of, again, extending that idea further and really providing much more evidence that this is a link between um, those reptilian or the reptile dinosaurs and birds, which is really interesting. Yeah. I love the ar Archaeopteryx yeah, because I remember when my um, my son was in daycare years ago, they had one of those incursions where some dude came in to teach him some dinosaur stuff. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, what's your favourite dinosaur? Yeah. And he ripped out Archaeopteryx <laughs> and, the guy, and the guy looked at him like, what the hell's that? <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my favourite was always a difficult one to say one. Mine was the Pachycephalosaurus. I used oh, to love that cool. one. Oh, that's cool. I love them yeah, as well. They're great. Oh, I also like Iguanodons. Yeah. Iguanodons also big in my books. But no, you're good. just showing off. No, no, no. Yeah. But how old was your son at the time? That's crazy. Uh, four. <laughs> so, but he used <laughs> to read, we used to read dinosaur books yeah, all the time. Yeah, we had yeah. this encyclopedia of dinosaurs. Archaeopteryx at four. I love it. And, and I remember him asking me a question a few years later, which I, I never had an answer for, which mm. was why of, of, all, of all the dinosaur names, Mm. Why did we only abbreviate T-Rex? Mm. It's to one of the it, easiest ones to, one to commercialize yeah. it because it's a really why. easy one to. But it's a really easy one to say. Well, like, 
A Atrix. There you go. You can yeah, start calling this the Atrix. Yes. That's so cool. That sounds like a band. It does. Actually. I'd listen to that band. <laughs> I'm just hoping the Brontosaurus is back. <laughs> yes, I know. Because for a while there, it was. Yeah. For a while there, everyone yeah. thought it was just a baby apathosaurus. Yes, and but no. Well, but we have this, uh, this concept in geology, especially or in phylogeny, I guess, is technically the word called lumpers and splitters. So sometimes you find something new and you want to give it a new name, even though it's ever so slightly different. So this Archaeopteryx, perhaps if you were a splitter, you would call it maybe something else, a different species, just because yeah. of these different. Um, yeah. Elements of its mm. physiology, yes. whereas if you're, a, you know, you're a lumper, you'd you'd put it into the same species. Yeah. So well, it's a, an interesting thing because maybe if someone else had found that fossil, they'd call it something totally different. But yeah. they did mm. they did talk they did talk about it as a different species, but because of the young aspect of it, they they talked about it as as more of a connection between mm. Mm. modern birds and dinosaurs. Now, Nicola, what's uh, of interest? from uh, the Brisbane perspective. I and mean, what do people in Brisbane find interesting in science? Oh, f well, people in general in Brisbane? No, in news. Oh, in news. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> I thought you were asking me in general. I was like, oh, I'm not prepared for this question. We need another hour for that. <laughs> my news is a little bit more, like, a little bit more, less, less exciting maybe as a word for some people. I personally find it incredibly fascinating and I saw this paper and I got really excited so um, this was released just last week in Nature Geosciences um, uh, a bunch of researchers from the Uni University of Toronto uh, wanted to look at, this sounds like a very simple question how much carbon is in trees hmm. and that sounds like very simple, it's just like well trees are mostly made of carbon, they're carbon based life forms, um, but this question is actually really important because we use these carbon estimations to um, put together different things and our understanding of, the, for instance the carbon we release into the atmosphere or the carbon that goes into the um, into the ground, let's say coal or oil or gas, um, this is very very important and what's interesting is that uh, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change they use this standard that all forests, all trees are just 50% carbon. That's yeah. the rule, no matter where you are. So if, when you're doing your calculations for, you know, releasing CO2 into the atmosphere or deforestation, we're only ever assuming that there's only 50% carbon in trees. And of course, that's not correct. Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to ask where they pulled that number from, but I think I already know the answer. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's really interesting. So they basically were like, well, we have to sort of fix this because there are so many different types of vegetation all around the planet we have different biomes we have different climates we have mm. different species and different phylogeny so just different types of all this different vegetation it's really important we understand how much carbon is in all of those so we can sort of fix our estimates a bit better and what they found is that there was actually what you would think a substantial variation in the different trees that they sampled so what they found is that there was an error um, of about 4.8 percent up to almost nine percent on some of those carbon estimates so um, whilst so whilst the ICC uh, the ICC uh, IPCC sorry uh, was using this 50% estimate, the truth is is that trees can contain from as low as 28% carbon mm. all the way up to 65% of carbon. So that means that, for instance, when you're looking at tropical areas, these tropical areas, the types of trees that grow there, have more carbon than if you went to, say, uh, a high-latitude forest, so like a pine forest or something like that. So that means if you're removing vegetation from areas in the tropics, from very warm places, so like the Amazon or uh, in Asia, you're actually having more of an effect uh, of uh, releasing carbon into the atmosphere than, say, if you were deforesting places at higher latitudes, like in Canada oh. or, or something like that. So 
this study um, basically built on uh, built on this fact, and they looked at 220, uh, 2,228 samples um, across 636 different species uh, to put together basically uh, this uh, map of where the most or where the least carbon is. And so, yeah, what they found was the wood uh, growing in these fast-growing shade-tolerant areas uh, had more carbon. Um, so that really needs to be, what they recommended is that that really needs to be put back into some of the estimates that we're making about how much carbon we're putting into the atmosphere or conversely is going into the ground. Yeah, one of the challenging things, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting study and, and stuff like this really needs to be done because one of the interesting things is, you know, for example, in climate models, which is, you know, they would have put that kind of 50% number into climate models to, to run things forward to see, you know, how much what we call land use change um, might mm. contribute to carbon, uh, carbon emissions into the future. But knowing that kind of detail is really important because at the moment, you know, IPCC had to put that kind of um, estimate in because we didn't have those numbers. Yeah. And the same thing goes, you know, we have to, and we have to kind of make these estimates all over the place. I know there's another big problem with running these climate models for, say, the Australian condition and looking at how Australian vegetation uptakes water and, and interacts with the atmosphere and stuff. Because eucalyptus trees, which are predominantly what's around and acacia, act really differently to every other type of vegetation right. right and you know in climate models there's like 12 types of vegetation globally and no. so what's repre <laughs> what's represented in australia is called evergreen which is more like pine forests mm. right and mm. that can be really problematic so coming up with these <coughs> estimates um is so valuable for being able to um refine what goes into the climate models mm. and really understand um what's going on yeah. so another thing they highlighted in this um which is one of their recommendations at the end of the study was that it was all well and good for them to go out and get collect all this data for the trees that exist now, but what happened millions of years ago? Like, we don't have an understanding of the amounts of carbon that were in some of the plants that have existed for, say, up to 350 million years. So one of their recommendations was that maybe we should go back to the fossil record and look at fossil wood and see if we can figure out if different species have different concentrations of carbon. And that what that lets us do is that lets us model uh, the interaction between the biosphere, so what's growing on Earth, and the atmosphere um, over millions and millions of years so we could look back um, to different periods of climate change and potentially be able to say hey um, if we had these types of trees with this much carbon and how how can we model that for for the environment that we're in now so are the changes that we're seeing in the past millions of years ago the same as the ones we see now hmm. depending on the types of trees yeah and presumably if you want to set up carbon sinks and so forth in the mm. future it'd be nice if you knew whether your tree was sitting at 60 percent or 30 absolutely um because there's i mean there's a monstrous difference there in it's terms huge. of efficiency and mm -hmm. and that's going to you know that's going to be important so it's disturbing we have to know these numbers, but um, still. But it's um, interesting to think about and good that we know now. It's good that we know. And I'm sure there'll be more refinement of this too, because even there's the amount that they store, but then there's also the speed at which they get to store it. And then the, I, I guess, the resilience of the storage. Yep. So there's sort of three things there. Yep. And, and I've heard a bit about the speed of growth. Yeah. Haven't heard a lot yeah. about resilience. Well, resilience has got to do with all sorts of things, um, you know, in terms of, uh, look, I mean, and that changes too. You know, you get you get fire through landscapes, yeah, and all yeah. of a sudden, if fire regimes change, that changes everything. Exactly. You know, so yeah. it's yeah, it's such a complicated stuff. complicated issue. Well, uh, we're going to take a bit of a break, and we will be back in the moment, folks. After some news with our first guest for today, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. Three Triple R.
Yeah, you are listening to Triple R, people. This is a science program. It's Einstein the Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Tim Doherty. He's from the Centre for Integrated Ecology at Deakin University. Tim, welcome to the studio. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to have you in. Uh, you came highly recommended by uh, Dr. Ewan, who uh, I think you sit near. I paid him a little bit of money. but <laughs> <laughs> no, Knowing him, probably quite a lot. Because uh, you guys are in the same centre, yeah? The, yeah, yep, yeah, we work closely together. Yep. And uh, he has given me, over the years, uh, I will call it a, a vague interest in dingoes. Um, well, no, that's not fair. I, Just I, vague. Yeah, you know, he, he he constantly talks to me about the importance of dingoes, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to get you in because we saw your work on dingoes and their diets. But before we get into that, can you just give us a bit of a rundown of sort of um, dingoes in terms of the ecology of of Australia, and you know, and talk to us about what role they play overall because i think people don't really have a good you know there's feral dogs out in the pasture somewhere they're not you know they play a they're apex predator that play a pretty major role can you just talk us through that a bit yeah so dingo is what we call our um a top predator or apex predator in the, the australian ecosystem so that means that they can uh regulate uh, populations of lower trophic levels like herbivores mm-hmm. uh, and then that is what we call a trophic cascade so Uh, When you've removed dingoes from an ecosystem, you can get more herbivores and then they graze more, then Mm -hmm. you get less ground cover and that can have negative consequences for smaller animals on the ground. Mm. Um, So dingoes are found across most of the Australian continent to varying degrees, different densities, uh, but they're quite rare in the southwest um, and uncommon in most of the southeast, but there are populations in certain areas. So and presumably before we came and fenced everything off, I mean, they, they were found throughout Australia and Tasmania, is that right? Uh, never in Tasmania, never but in yeah, Tasmania. Ac- across the entire mainland continent. Yeah. yeah. And and what sort of environments do sort of dingoes typically like? I mean, I, 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 I suppose, and maybe this is just because of where we live, but I don't have an image of seeing dingoes wandering around the Dandenong Ranges. <laughs> but, I, but I do have an image of them seeing seeing them walk around the more sort of desolate sort of areas. I mean, where, where do they like to be? Yeah, so the, the deserts is sort of the typical imagery we get for, you know, that sandy-coloured yeah. dingo. But there's actually dingoes in the... Victorian Alps. Right. Um, so yeah, they can uh, live in a huge range of different ecosystems. They're a generalist predator. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're all over the place, really. Mm. Yeah. Now let's talk about uh, your work on what they like to eat, yes. because it seems like uh, now, from what you sent through, two hundred and twenty-nine different vertebrate species. Yep. That is the buffet, Tim. Yeah, it's every- a lot. Yeah, that's yep. everything. That's a lot. Yeah. So this study, I'll just start off by saying that it was a big collaborative project with mm-hmm. lots of people from different states um, and territories, uh, including state governments and universities and. I have to acknowledge them and also the people that collected the data so this dietary study is based on collecting dingo poo so people go out and have to collect poo if yeah. they want to understand what they're eating so yep. yeah thumbs up to the people that did that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i love i love how you outsource that part yeah, of yeah. Oh, yeah of course yeah. yeah well dr ewan would outsource that i'm sure yeah. as well he, yeah i think he's done a little bit of it he's done um, a bit of poo collection yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. with his kids um it's a, yeah uh, yeah so i mean with this study uh, we collated 73 data sets from across the entire continent yep. and that amounted to more than 32,000 dingo scats or their feces or their stomach contents as well. Mm. And then uh, what we looked at is how uh, their dietary composition, so the frequency of different food types in their diet, varies across the continent in five different bioclimatic regions. So. Okay. Arid, semi-arid, tropical, subtropical, and temperate. Right. Now, I want to know 
how from the poo you specifically determined that it was a kangaroo and i know that rhymes and that was accidental <laughs> but how do, how do you do that is this is this genetic sequencing or uh no that's actually quite a, a recent development but uh most of what's been done is based on for mammals at least um taking the hair out of the scats oh, right, yeah. and looking at it under a microscope to look at the the scale patterns and the shape of the hair and that sort of thing and we have reference libraries for hmm. um how the fur or the hair of different species varies and we can identify them to the species level like that. So, so you can pull out... To, I, I'm sorry, I'm just blown away by the fact that you can get a bit of hair and work out which of 229 different species that hair came from. And this is done manually, presumably. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot uh, of time under the microscope. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I That's think it's 117, what? but I'm not sure. It could be 68. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so the, the fur is only for mammals, of course. Yep. Um, for other things like birds and reptiles... For reptiles, you're looking at scale patterns that can be a little bit harder, the way they get digested. Birds, the, the feathers that are there, and then you've also got insects and that sort of stuff. And you can also look at bones as well that are in there. Of the 229 species, I have to ask, are we one of them? Uh, I mean, you there, should just, there is just call one, it 230. Yeah, well, <laughs> we didn't include it, the Homo sapiens in there, but there is one study which has reported... Uh, Homo sapiens hair in a dingo scat, which they think is from a dingo uh, scavenging at a rubbish tip, right. and they've eaten some rubbish which might have been hair from someone's hairbrush. So I'm pretty sure it, if we were asleep for long enough, they'd eat us. They, they'd eat us. Potentially. Small yeah. versions of us, maybe. Yeah. Oh, are you making a Zaria? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, hey, I took my four months off into the desert last year and I was a bit paranoid. <laughs> yeah. I must is, is 35 years too <laughs> soon? Lost track about that one. Now, in terms of the the knowledge you get here, with so many species being um, eaten by the dingoes, I mean, what does that mean in terms of? I mean, there's a lot of lot of feral cats. I'm sure we'd love the dingoes to eat, mm. um, but there's also a lot of the mammals and that that we really have on the endangered list, presumably, which is problematic. I mean, how, how does that all sit? Yeah, so in terms of um, the management implications, uh, there's I guess there's three groups that we're really interested in understanding where how they occur in the diet of dingoes. So you've got the threatened species, like you mentioned. Then you've got introduced pest animals, like goats or cats or rabbits. Camels? Camels, camels are in there, but that's we, yeah. presumably scavenging rather than oh, excavation. Because okay. I want to see that YouTube video. Anyway, yep, go um, on. Uh, there's a bigger species than camels, but we'll get back to that. Okay, yep. Um, and uh, then you've also got livestock as well, so right. dingoes can yep. impact on livestock yep. production. So dietary studies do have limitations in terms of how you can use that information to influence management, but they're an important step in, I guess, understanding what the dingoes are doing in the first place. Um, and then in terms of management, it really comes down to uh, local site-based studies to understand, yeah, what the potential impacts could be. Mm. So given, you know, those three groups you talked about, is there any idea about, um, you know, how much of their diet is those introduced pest species, you know, rabbits and, and things that are a real problem um, in, a, in a lot of the Australian landscape and, and actually affect, you know, those threatened species as well? Is there... Is there any indication that, you know, dingoes can be used as an effective management tool for these introduced species? Absolutely. So as a top predator, I think I mentioned before that dingoes can regulate herbivore populations. So that includes native species. So you might have overabundant kangaroos, which can overgraze. 
uh, but also dingoes can regulate uh, feral goat populations as well. So that's a good thing. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, there's potential flow-on effects in terms of benefiting native species by conserving habitat structure and that sort of thing. And then the, the other thing is um, dingoes can uh, potentially regulate mesopredators. So that's predators that are at the next trophic level down from the apex predator. So in Australia, we've got two invasive mesopredators, the red fox and the feral cat. Uh, and there's evidence that dingoes can uh, influence their behaviour. So uh, where, where these invasive mesopredators occur or the time of day that they're active. Uh, and then um, some, some evidence that they can influence uh, their population densities. Um, and there's a lot more work to be done in that space. So I wanted to ask about um, specifically like biolocation, how, how these um, feeding habits change, because I'm from Queensland and I, I just wanted to say we have dingoes on Fraser Island and that's one of our big, our big things, come to Fraser Island, see all the dingoes that live on the island. But for instance, the dingoes there that live on this island would probably have quite a significantly different diet than ones that live you know, in the hinterlands or something like that. How is that? Um, how is that spatial relationship change what they eat? Yeah. So uh, Fraser Island. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that's the location where uh, whale has been recorded in the diet of dingoes. Mm. And whale. Whales. Mm. Yes. That's quite an effort. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but that's it's actually from dingoes scavenging them when they've been. It's a carcass stranded on a beach. Yeah. I'd like to see that YouTube video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 I was going to say. Um, actually, yeah. there might be actually something because it's, it's niggling a. Brain cell here where I think there is actually a video or at least some photos of dingoes scavenging whales yeah. out there because it's not uncommon to have whale carcasses out yeah, there. Yeah, dugongs, turtles, mm. that sort of thing, fish as well. Uh, but in terms of uh, on the mainland, yeah, we certainly see some really big variations. So in uh, cent arid central Australia, the main components of dingo diet are small mammals, reptiles, birds, invertebrates, and rabbits, introduced rabbits, which I haven't mentioned yet. Uh, but if you go further east, so tropic, subtropical and temperate eastern Australia, uh, other groups like medium-sized mammals like possums, bandicoots um, and potaroos and then large mammals like the kangaroos uh, are much, much more important. And so we see yeah, a, a, a huge difference there. And that really comes down to local prey availability. Mm. So because dingoes are a generalist predator, uh, they're going to eat what's available, and that comes down to optimal foraging mm. theory and those sort of things. Tim, just before we let you go, I just want to get a bit of a feel, um, and this is more for everyone out there listening, of the sort of nature of the dingo as, as an animal, because I, I, my impression is if I was in Yosemite and I was surrounded by five you know, northern hemisphere wolves, you know, the, I, I might need a change of underwear. I could be a bit concerned, but I, I don't get the same impression of dingoes being, you know, quite, quite nasty, hostile animals. You know, in that same same sort of grouping, even though they're also dogs and yep. and so forth. I mean, what are they like as as a species in terms of? Um, I mean, I know people have them as pets, yeah. But are they, you know, are they comparable to like like something like a wolf, or are they more docile? So dingoes are actually smaller than the grey wolf, and uh, uh, the North American equivalent of a dingo would actually be a coyote, so right. they're similar yeah. in size. Okay. Um, and in terms of risks that dingoes can pose to humans, uh, most of those uh, instances actually occur, for example, on Fraser Island, where people are feeding dingoes and that sort of thing, so they're actually messing up with their, their mm. natural behaviour. And that's when, you know, 
potentially bad things can happen. But on the whole, d- dingoes aren't a threat to humans. Right. You know, yeah. they're, they're an important part of our ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to change people's opinion on dingoes one, one human at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's fascinating to hear that these things are eating so many different species from across across Australia. And, and hopefully, you know, if we, the more we learn, the more we can utilise them as part of the, the natural ecosystem we're trying to restore. So uh, keep up the good work and um, we'll, we'll talk about this again sometime. Great, thank you. Dr. Tim Doherty is from the Centre for Integrated ecology at Deakin University. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about something that you shove into your heart, folks. It's really cool. Three. Triple. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jeff Rogers. He's the CEO and Executive Director of Wintermute Biomedical, a company here in Melbourne. Jeff, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thanks, Jane. Great to be here. Now, first of all, congratulations, because you've won the 2018 Prime Minister's Prize for New Innovators. Um, What did you get? What did I get? Well, obviously, uh, a really nice shiny medal, um, an opportunity to uh, really showcase the kind of work that we're doing and and the value of that to Australia as well. Yep. Is there a big uh, novelty check? There wasn't a big novelty check, but there was some prize money. Oh, that's good. It's always a dream, the novelty check. Although I often wondered what you'd do with it if you actually got it. Like, do you have to take it into a bank? or you know, like? I have had one before, but yeah. it, you don't literally go and cash it. <laughs> yeah. They give you the real check as well. Oh, that's great, because I'd love to sort of try and shove it under that little window at the bank and sort of have to fold it. And, anyway, uh, on a serious note, though, um, this is to do with your work on this steerable guide wire for, for the heart. Talk us through what, well, first of all, talk us through the sort of thing you'd want this for with the heart. I mean, what, what's the deal? Why are we trying to put stuff in, into the heart and how, how do we do that? Yeah, so uh, as you know, cardiovascular disease is one of the largest causes of death worldwide. In Australia alone, five people every hour die from this disease. And so if you get that, I mean, the most common form of cardiovascular disease is heart disease. Mm-hmm. If you get heart disease, then the, the preferred method of treatment is to go in for a day procedure where they make a small hole, usually in the groin, Mm -hmm. and they pass therapy up through that into the heart and they treat that disease in and around the heart. Um, The issue for us was that the devices they use to do this, in about 20% of cases, the patients can't be treated. And so what we did is develop a new technology to hopefully enable those 20% of patients to get treated now. So so why couldn't they be treated? What, What was the problem? So the, the, the main issue is the device they use is, is, is a tiny wire called mm-hmm. a guide wire. They put a little bend in the tip of that. I should say the wire is about a third of a millimetre in diameter, about okay. two strands of hair thick. Mm-hmm. They put a little bend in the end and they pass that up through the body and they steer that around the arteries depending on where they want to go. The issue is as they get deep inside the body, you can't steer that wire anymore, so you can't physically get that wire into position in order to deliver treatment. Um, and so that's that's the major issue. And presumably parts of the body, I mean, not, not you know, I'm a physicist, so it's all straight roads to me, but there's a lot of twists and turns. Oh, yeah, especially uh, as patients get older as well. Yeah. As we age, our arteries lengthen yep. okay. um, and, and obviously they're constrained. So what they do in order to be accommodated is they, they, they twist and turn more. 
Mm. Yeah. And you want to be able to put things, physical objects in there as well, don't you? Like stents and so forth. Exactly. So, I mean, talk us through that because a a stent is, well, you you can tell us. Yeah, so basically if you have heart disease, you obviously have a blockage of an artery. Mm -hmm. A stent is designed to go in and open that artery up again. Kind of looks like a little cylinder made of sort of chicken wire mesh. Mm. And they expand that out in position and that opens that blood vessel up again and clears that blockage. Um, they deliver those stents over the top of these wires I'm talking about, right. these guide wires. So the guide wire goes in first to kind of give you a rail to pass yep. the stent yep. over. And if you can't get the wire to the problem site and actually past the problem site, so through the blockage and past it, you can't deliver the stent over the top in order to open that vessel up. Yeah. And, and all of this is done um, under sort of, uh, I suppose, an X-ray system or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, so my original field of um, research was fibre optics. And one of the things that myself and a colleague in Sydney designed was a piece, a type of optical fibre that you could bend around a pencil wow. without any loss of light and, and so forth. And, and we did that specifically for this sort of work yep. at the time. And because we found it amazing that there was no camera on the end of this guide wire or there was no there was no internal camera that gave you you know the sort of detail that you would like. You're looking at it from outside. Is that still the case? Yes, everything's X ray. So the way they do this procedure now it's a day procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, if things go to plan it's it, you know it's thirty minutes to an hour and it's all done under X ray. So the stent, the wire, any catheters any other therapies they do, all via X-ray, and the X-ray is very good now, so mm. it's uh, it's very high fidelity. Excuse me. There's um, they can do 3D mapping, they can do all kinds of fancy things. So that's how they do the procedure. Cameras are used in some um, parts of the body, but the problem is the blood vessels around the heart are so small, small mm. you just can't at the moment. To current technology, you can't really accommodate a camera into that setting. Yeah. Now tell us about your. Um version of the world here your steerable guide way how how is it different how does it work so that little tip i talked about that gets currently gets uh bent before the wire goes into the body by the by your surgeon um we've taken that tip and we've made that robotically controllable with the joystick so now you can steer that tip in any direction by any angle any amount that you want and you can change it while it's inside the patient um, so a big advantage allows you to go into places you can't get now and also around different corners, change the tip, do different different sort of um, traverses that you can't do at present. And it doesn't matter how deep in the body you go? doesn't matter how deep you go. Hmm. So you talk about how like it's using a, a joystick. Uh, what's the actual setup like? Because I, I know that there's a few... Um, uh, different technologies that use things like Xbox controllers or PlayStation controllers specifically to to do this. But this is an actual like old-fashioned like joystick. Or this is a little handheld uh, joystick, just a tiny little wireless. It looks a lot like a Nintendo Wii Chuck nunchuck. Hmm. Um, just a little tiny little handheld joystick that you put in one hand, and with the other hand you still pass the wire into the body. So in the past, what you would do is twist the wire, you rotate it outside the patient and advance by hand. So twist, advance, twist, advance. Now what you do is steer, advance, steer, advance. And the real advantage is that when you're deep inside the patient, that tortuosity, as we call it, that you talked about, Shane, as you're deep inside, when you're deep inside the body, you can't you can't twist that wire right, anymore. Yeah. Friction builds up on it. And you can't get a one-to-one rotation of the wire. Our system allows you to steer that tip no matter what. Mm. Friction doesn't matter anymore. And, I mean, the big question, I suppose, that I already know the answer to, but it, it's physically no bigger. So it's no, prohib- no pr- prohibiting any sort of 
parts of the body being injured. In fact, you're opening it up. Absolutely. Everything exactly the same. The, 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 what they call the workhorse guide wire that they use in most cases is called a, a balanced middleweight. It doesn't mean much. But we call it the BMW wire. Um, our <laughs> wire is literally looks like a BMW, acts like a BMW, except it's got a steerable tip. So right. everything else exactly the same. So if I go and get a, a you know, need to get a stent in or, or just an examination, which is sometimes the case, you know, people don't always yep. get, get procedures done beyond that, um, should, you know, if I'm at my local, because so, these, these are done at, not quite the milk bars, but they're, they're done at, you know, local sort of um, non-hospital-based environments now, you know, the, the same place you'd get a gastroscopy and so forth. Should I be expecting this technology to be available to me now, or is it still a few years? No, it's, it's out there. It's still, a, it's still a couple of years away, to be honest. So last year, the technology was picked up by what is the largest manufacturer of these particular wires in the world, mm-hmm. Merit Medical Systems, well which was a great partnership for us. Yeah. Um, they're now scaling up the manufacturing on those and hoping to have that on market in the next two years or so. Okay. Um, so it's still a little way away, mm-hmm. but coming soon. So I'm going to wait. Um, I want the steerable one. <laughs> so... Okay, this might be a, a bit of a complicated question to answer really simply, but well, it's a simple question. But how does it actually work? Like, what if you you haven't put anything in the end or anything? Like, how how does the steerable part actually work? Yeah, would you believe that our wire's hollow? Ah, uh, right. And that inside that wire, there's four more wires. Wow! <laughs> wires That's within crazy. wires within wires. Yeah, wires within wires. Tiny wires within tiny tiny yep. wires and tiny yep. tiny so wires. So inside the guide wire, as I said, it's hollow, and there's four little uh, control cables, yeah, mechanical right. control okay. cables. Yeah those cables when you pull on them they flex the tip left or right up or down Um, and those little cables inside are like spider silk they're Mm. 38 microns micrometers so Mm. 0.038 millimeters in diameter tiny tiny so what are they made of they're actually made of a polymer yeah Yeah, polyethylene uh, and what they call an ultra high molecular weight Mm -hmm. polyethylene Mm -hmm. which is interestingly stronger than steel so, wow. yeah. so it's interesting That's that you, cool. you brought that up because I was expecting this to be some kind of um, inducer or some, you know, some kind of induction yeah, electrical system. Yeah, that's what I was system. thinking. Exactly. And it's mechanical. Yeah. No, it's it's, mechanical. So, so you've gone from twisting mm-hmm. to pulling. That's basically the answer. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. yeah. So when we started the project probably a uh, good five years ago, uh, it was interesting. We started with a technology that was very similar to what you were mentioning, Shane. Yeah. But we ran into so many technical challenges that we couldn't overcome. So in the end, we, we looked at the market. Some new technology had become available uh, that enabled us, that, in particular, these particular cables, um, and that enabled us to develop the first mechanical system. It's fantastic. Now, um, before you, you sort of go, Jeff, I just wanted to touch on your other project because uh, you're doing doing some other things around antibiotics as well here in here in Melbourne. That's Talk correct. That. Yeah. Yeah, so... I mean. We're, so, running, we're running out of those, by the way. You know that. I know. I know. <laughs> so uh, when, when my company was acquired last year by Merit Medical, uh, I got dragged in to do something new, and that's developing antibiotics to fight superbugs. Um, it's a US company, uh, but we're setting up an office here in Melbourne mm-hmm. uh, to develop what is our technology, a truly special technology, we think. Uh, it's, so far, it's killed every superbug that we've tested. Right. Um, it has no known side effects. Uh, and all the in vitro testing that we've done indicates that it should have a long, uh, ma- a long lifespan on market, which is obviously really key with resistance being the major issue. Mm. So we're really excited. Um, clinical trials will be happening here, and Australians will be getting access to this world-leading technology first. Fantastic. And is it? Um, I mean, the one thing that I've found interesting around antibiotic research over the years is what I would call a complete lack of understanding of how these things work, and hence an inability to do anything about this problem. And this is, you know, this is one of the baseline problems. I suspect we have 
in biomedicine is that we use a lot of things that we don't understand. Is is this new technology something that we understand well so that we can, you know, if, if it turns out that resistance does pop up, we can tweak it and wing fix it and so forth. Is it that is it that sort of answer or is it just another bit of coral we dug up? Yeah. No, so we've come at this very differently. We we actually have uh, we have uh, two two active ingredients to overlay complexity for mm-hmm. the bacteria. And they're not synthetic. They're not cooked up in a lab. They're not. They're not kind of new. Um, they're things that, that are already regarded as safe and effective, but have never been used in an antibiotic before. So we're fundamentally coming from a place of safety, rather than synthetic chemistry. Um, we know quite a lot about this particular compound, and we're continuing to learn about it every day. And everything that we're seeing says that this is this is a very different approach to developing a new antibiotic might call it next generation yep um which is really what we need we need to do something different to Mm. what we've always done before and presumably if the safety efficacy part's already done this means we're not looking at a 20-year turnaround time on this particular type of drug we're a few years is that yeah so it's hard to project but you know hopefully hopefully we're talking three to five years pending trials and so forth um but you know the technology is here today it works Mm. um and we're already getting approached very regularly for last resort therapy opportunities. So um, we're we're diligently trying to work to make this available as fast as we can at Winnemute Biomedical. Fantastic. And Jeff, just before we let you go, just um, your your background, because, you know, you're in in this company structure now, you're obviously, you know, working on these interesting technologies. I mean, where did you you stem from? So my background's mechanical engineering at Monash University Mm -hmm. here in Melbourne, uh, undergrad and PhD. Uh, but I've spent my whole life working in medical application of engineering and medical problem solving. Mm. So a good example of where these things come together, they, uh, yeah. you know, they give you good results. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, Jeff. thanks so much for coming in. Uh, congratulations again on the Prime Minister's Prize. It's a great accolade and I think uh, hopefully it will help you promote the uh, the work you're doing, although by the sounds of things you don't need a lot of promotion. It's going really well. So uh, look forward to seeing this new guide wire out there in all the facilities that sell it and uh, hopefully the new antibiotic stuff will be a winner as well. Great. Thanks, Shane. Dr. Jeff Rogers is the CEO and Executive Director of Wintermute Biomedical here in Melbourne. We're going to take a break for some station announcements, folks, and we'll be back with just a little bit more news before we finish the show. Three. Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We've just got a few minutes left. And, you know, sometimes uh, people wouldn't know this, but uh, Dr. Shane, that's me. I often don't get to do my news because my team has such amazing bloody stuff they bring in that... I'll leave it out. But we have a few minutes, so I wanted to mention something that I saw a couple of weeks ago which I thought was really fascinating, and that was some work that's come out of Johns Hopkins University on the creation, essentially, of an artificially grown retina. So this is this concept of um, being able to, in a dish grow something equivalent to a human retina now what you've got to keep in mind is most of the sort of tests and so forth that researchers do on on eyes are done either on fish eyes or on mice eyes now um unlike humans and and higher primates um these animals do not have three color vision Mm. they don't have the sort of vision we have so you can imagine there's a lot of limitations in terms of what you're actually doing and that restricts the sort of 
information you can get and you know mice and fish are great to work with them you know there's a lot of good stuff done there but if you really want to study um the human eye you need to be able to artificially create the human eye in in, in a dish and more to the point if you want to be able to repair the human eye uh, you know being able to grow human retinas is a, a fantastic thing to be able to do so um what what they worked on was this um, new method of essentially growing these these things from scratch essentially from stem cells and so forth but um the bit that's fascinating is the question of how the human eye goes about growing the three different color receptors that we have so you, know, you have blue red and green and the question is how does how do the cells know which ones to become and and how would you control that like how you actually go about that and this is where the the team from johns hopkins have been working on this and what they found was there's a particular very common um thyroid hormone that when when the eye is actually producing these particular cells as it regulates this hormone it switches on and off which ones are produced mm -hmm. so it will go from producing it starts off apparently in the, in the and this happened in the dish when they were doing this they started off producing blue ones so yep. they were all blue and then the levels of this hormone changed and all of a sudden the red ones were produced and then the level of the hormone changed again and all of a sudden they started getting the green ones and so by orientating you know this hormone you can you can determine which ones you you would get now the interesting thing is this thyroid hormone of course from the name would normally be controlled by the thyroid but actually in the case of eye production and eye growth it's controlled by the eye so the amount of hormone that's being utilized has been controlled controlled locally by the eye so that it knows it's getting the right parts in the right you know percentages so it's, it's fascinating they've, they've managed to do this because essentially what that means is you can look at the whole of the conditions where people have the wrong distribution of different cells in their eye and, and different color receptors so you know, we have this common idea of color blindness and you know this is really a problem with with the receptors in your eye but it also tells us that we could potentially control some of these things if we were if we were to produce artificial retinas we'd need to be able to produce them in such a way where we mimicked a good a good retina and to do that you have to be able to control these hormone levels and that's that's one of the things these these people have found out but one of the the hallmarks for me you never hear this about stem cell research you know people don't talk about this in stem cell research but the idea of being able to take some of your cells your cells Ailey grow part of you in a dish and then do my experiments on the part in the dish rather than on, on you me. Yeah. i mean this I'd is prefer that I think. yeah this <laughs> is the version of stem cells you don't hear about yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. it's the safe completely safe testing on the exact person that you want to do the job on so that's what that's what is that what this study was kind of designed to do to create these retinas for testing purposes for well, then going on to do something yeah, I mean, on the patient well, or is it for kind well, of retinal transplants well there's, there's actually sort of three there's three key areas mm. one is being able to do research and understand how retinas are grown of course yeah, there's that, the basic the stuff basic there's i want to be able to trial new drugs and so forth on the retina and i don't want to use a person or a higher primate to do that mm. and a mouse doesn't cut it and the third of course you know the holy grail is what if we could actually produce a new retina for a person down mm. the track and that, mm. and that's that's the growing organs part you know that's mm. the i think that's the the longer term stuff but the the shorter term stuff is being able to test things on you know test drugs and so forth and procedures on part of someone's body when it's not in their body yeah and that's that's the that's the story about stem cells that you don't hear in the news and to me that's mm. the part that if you want to get support for stem cells we need to um we need to be able to tell that story because that's the story that says says safe it's there's no ethical issues yep. there's nothing about it that we would have a problem with so 
Anyway, there you go. Last little bit of news. I've been hanging on for a couple of weeks with that (laughs) one um, because I just I find it absolutely fascinating. Now, um, Nicola, thanks so much for coming down from Brisbane and and being part of our show. It's great to have a a um, another representative of the community radio sector in here. No worries, no worries. It's been it's been a pleasure, even though it's been horrifically cold for me <laughs> for me down here. It's ha- I'm happy Soft. to talk about science. Talk about science in Melbourne. I, th- I think we need more punk on our show now. Well, we, we, well. I can always make recommendations. But. Yeah, well, you know, we had punk in here today, and it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. Um, thanks so much, and good luck with your program up there in um, in Brisbane. Hope it continues to go well. And um, it was a delight having you on the show. Awesome. Thank you guys so much, Dr. Ailey. Good to have you in. We're going to have to Dr. do. Shane. We're going to have to do a big climate show at some stage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we need a bit of an update, I think, yeah, don't we? We, yeah. we do it every now and then. We're yeah. probably due. But yeah, maybe before the good. end of the year, we'll talk to you and Dr. Linden so we can good. hook up. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to us, everybody. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, I'm going to hand over to the team from Eat It. Remember, science is everywhere. And thank you so much for supporting Triple R. This has been a podcast oh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.